Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know a little about our exhibitions on view now is the exhibition Chinese American Exclusion Inclusion, which explores the centuries-long history of trade and immigration between China and the US as well as two new exciting exhibitions. You, you probably saw the trains, Holiday Express, Toys and Trains from the Journey Collection. It's beautiful. Come back and Annie Leibovitz's pilgrimage on our second floor. So please pick up a brochure on your way out um, and consider becoming a member if you're not. And I just always like to ask how many members do we have with us? We have quite a few members. This is great. So those of you who are not Join the family, we'd love to have you with us. Tonight's program, An Evening with Lee Grant, is, you know, I have to take a, a little breath because I'm so thrilled to have you here, Lee. We've been waiting a long time, yes, she's been wonderful. <laughs> Lee has been with us in our film series and I just couldn't wait, and when her book came out, this was the perfect time. So the program tonight is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors, historians, and actresses to the New York Historical Society. I also want to thank our Chairman's Council members for all their good work and support who are with us tonight. Let's give them all a hand. Thank you. So we always like to tell you ahead of time that the program will last an hour. It will include an answer, a question and answer session, and we invite audience members to approach our two standing mics in the aisles. Um, we do that so that everyone in the audience can hear you, and those who listen to our recorded podcasts, which will be on our website, can hear you as well. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with Lee Grant, whose book will be available, is available for purchase if you don't already have it in our museum store on the 77th Street side and the book signing will be on the Central Park West side. So again, we're so pleased to welcome back Lee Grant. Um, Ms. Grant established herself as a formidable Broadway actress while still in her teens and we heard about that when she discussed the film The Search with Montgomery Clift and how she sat in the theater enthralled by him. And um, when, she, while she, as, when she established herself as a Broadway actress um, in her teens, she won the Critics Circle Award for her performance as a shoplifter in Detective Story. She recreated this portrayal on film, earning the Cannes Film Festival Award as Best Actress and her first of four Academy Award nominations. Her stunning film and television career has included an Emmy Award for Peyton Place and an Academy Award for Shampoo, among others. Ms. Grant has also had great success as a director, earning Academy Emmy and Peabody Awards for her various projects. This past summer, she released her memoir, I Said Yes to Everything. And we'll hear about that tonight. Our moderator this evening is Antonio Monda, a professor in the film and television department at New York University. His film, Decembre, 
was presented at the Venice Film Festival, and he has curated exhibitions at MoMA, Lincoln Center, and the Guggenheim. He's the artistic director of Le Conversazioni, an international literary festival presented in Capri, Rome, and New York. He is a columnist for the Italian news organization RAI and a regular contributor for the cultural pages of La Repubblica. An acclaimed author, he is working on a forthcoming novel dedicated to New York in the 20th century. The New York Times, where I discovered him, has defined him as a one-man Italian cultural institute. Before we begin, I'd just like to ask everyone if you have an electronic device or a cell phone, please turn it off. Um, we have if no photography, just house photographer, and please, um, and no, rec no recording. So now, please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. Look familiar. Good evening, and welcome back. I'm very, very honored and thrilled to host this event with the great Lee Grant. I want to add that she's the recipient of two Academy Awards, one for her magnificent performance in Shampoo, and one as a director for a wonderful documentary called Down and Out in America. We put together a few clips here. And in order to start with the first question, I would like to ask to see just a couple of minutes of clips of Lee Grant's great acting. And then we'll start, OK? Just two minutes. Hello, Jack. Yeah, listen, can Millie hear me? I don't want her to know, but I'm in a gym. I need your help, so don't let on. Make out like it's nothing. I'm at a police station. I took a big. I, I steal everything. What? You could get caught. I have never gotten caught, sweetheart. I'm telling you, I, I, it's a gift. Nobody thinks that I would take anything. What kind of people are you? What kind of a place is this? My husband is dead. I did something very naughty this morning. Yes. What'd you do? Delicate. I'm, I'm so worried that she's cold. Uh, Roy! <sighs> he fell. Don't comb my hair out. No, I'll no. do it now. No, I'll do it George, now. you can do it later, for heaven's sakes. George, no. I'm so glad you're going to be there tonight. I discovered in her book that Lee Grant was part of the American Ballet with George Balanchine. Is that right? And how did it happen? 
uh, everybody's mother mm -hmm. wants their daughter to be um, a, a ballet dancer. And so while I, I did not have real talent from the waist down, uh, <laughs> my mother enlisted me in the uh, Metropolitan Ballet when I was about four. And she talked Balanchine into taking me into the American ballet. But uh, even she saw that uh, next to the other brilliant dancers, that that was not my vocation. Is there anything that you learned from that experience? Yes, I, I, I did. I, I learned talent. And when I don't have it, and when others do have it. And, and I was so empty of, of the kind of brilliance that the other uh, young dancers had that it was a, a very good lesson for me. Yeah. Let's go to the book. First of all, the title. I say yes to everything. A very funny and intelligent title. Can you, can you tell us why this title? Um, I, you know, I remember the book Candide? where life takes him and he just goes with it and goes with the next thing that happens and goes with the next thing that happens. And, and that's, that's really what my life has been like. It's been lucky, it's been terrible, it's been an accident, it's been fortunate. But whatever came up, um, I went with it. And, and so it was yes to whatever was there. Before you mentioned that there is something related to memory. To what? Memory. Probably that's the reason. Memory. Yes. Why did you write this book? Why did you felt, I want to write now a memoir? Um, uh, I, I had a, a secret fear that I was losing my memory. And it was, is this too sharp? Does this microphone sound sharp to you? It sounds OK? Huh? Ron Rifkin, my director. And, uh, and I, my husband, Joey, is there. And, and I, I didn't want to tell him because I knew he'd be so afraid. And, uh, and I had had a, a huge professional problem with memory loss uh, before. First, because I went in front of the Un-American Activities Committee and, um, and, I, and I said at an informal committee meeting, I said two names. They weren't lefties. They weren't anybody that I turned in. But the realization of how I could be tricked into perhaps hurting someone made it uh, almost impossible for me to introduce one friend to another after that. My memory for names was gone. And then when I was doing Prisoner of Second Avenue, um, in the last week of performing, I went up at, at night. I went up, I blanked, I forgot all my lines. And, uh, and I never after that on stage had the kind of, you know, great surprise and jumping into the part and not knowing what was going to happen next. That's, that's such a, oh, it's what actors live for. And, uh, and it was gone. And, and so this latest kind of fear of memories, but I've had it all my life, was that I was going to forget myself. And so I started 
writing and the flooding of the childhood and, and the brownstone and camp and my mother and my aunt and my father, the flooding of it to the smells and to the tastes and to, was, was such a gift and, and such a reassuring experience for me that I spent four years um, writing and the only thing I did was uh, I taught at NYU. I taught graduate uh, directors, some of whom are, are trying to make a documentary about older women. <laughs> and, uh, I think and, they're here filming, are they? Yeah. Yes, yeah. And so, and that's how it came to be written. You mentioned a Prisoner of the Second Avenue, which is of course a famous Neil Simon play and film. Neil Simon defined you the first and only choice for that part. How was working with him? Can you tell me something about how, Neil, how, Neil Simon? How what? I was working in... Uh, well, there were two things of, of working with him. One is that he was a genius, a, a comic genius. And, and, uh, and the fact that he could put together people who were so desperate that the audience could not stop laughing at them. <laughs> that that the, the, the desperation was so extreme that, that the, uh, the acknowledgement of that could happen to me, it's happening to them. People were roaring with laughter and always have because he took the experience to the edge. And uh, he had a he had a terrible thing happen to him. He lost his wife. His wife died when he was barely 40, and she too. And, and I think that his, his whole intention and the whole kind of exploration of his plays after that and the kind of women he had playing as leading ladies was to recreate Joan, I think her name was. Wasn't it Joyce? Joan. Yes. Uh, I think it was to recreate Joan, yeah. You started working on Broadway in 1947, 1948, you were an understudy in Oklahoma. Yes. Uh, how important was and is for you to be uh, a stage train actress, working also in the movies and in television? And how important is the theater for you as an actress? Well, at that time, you know, I'm born and raised in New York. I'm an Upper West Sider, <laughs> you know. I, I was, and so were all these guys, which is why I, I so wanted to come to you, because, you know, we were on the same wavelength or something. And uh, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> Working on the stage and being an actress. For and, and that's all, you know, when I was raised, you know, there was no television. There was radio and the theater. And, and at, at that time, although I didn't know it, the group theater had made this huge impact on the way actors acted. For the first time, Stanislavski had showed Stella Adler and Sandy Meisner and all of these people what real exploration as an actor was. You know, not getting up and declaiming and, and having all the lights on you, but to really explore the character. And, 
and so the first time that I found that I, I, I really had a talent was when I went to the neighborhood playhouse and discovered that I could disappear into a character and, and was, you know, just, it was like a religion to me, you know. The great lessons from the actor's studio, the method, uh, Lee Strasberg, all the other great masters, do you think is still... I wouldn't put Strasberg with all the others. That's can just ask, my personal can, can I ask you why? Uh, he was very Hasidic. Mm -hmm. uh, Strasberg was like the rabbi who, who cannot stop talking and talking, darling, darling, darling. And, uh, and, and what happened was that particularly the young women in the studio, it became more important what he said about them than for them to work in the theater. And, and so the holiness of, of his estimation of who they were became uh, such a, um, an ego thing that I think his ego superseded the, the drive of those actors to be themselves in a working situation. Uh, being an actress, do you think it, it is easier to make your audience laugh or cry? Well, it's, I don't really think about them. <laughs> is it easier to be a comedian or a dramatic actor? I, I, and I don't really think about that. I'm a character actor. I, I never wanted to be a leading lady. I never wanted to carry the responsibility of being the pretty one. <laughs> it's such a responsibility, and it, there's no payoff. Uh, a character, if you can go into a character and, and find that part of yourself that fits into it, like the little girl in detective story yeah. who comes from someplace in the Bronx, and I picked that character up from two girls on a bus behind me while I was still at the neighborhood playhouse. And three years later, I brought it in when I, when I read for Sidney Kingsley in Detective Story. He wanted me to do the ingenue in it. And I was so bored by her. I said, can I read for the old lady? Because it said that the character was 40. <laughs> <laughs> See, from different sides. And, uh, and so, my attraction has always been to doing someone who I've never explored before. This introduces my next question, which is shampoo. You won an Oscar for that, and you play Warren Beatty's uh, girlfriend. Not really. No, he had two other girlfriends. Yes, one of the girlfriends. He had Julie Christie, and he had Goldie Hawn. <laughs> I, I, was, I was... One of the girlfriends. Well, it's a compliment, okay? <laughs> Why don't you tell us something about Al Hashbi and Warren Beatty on that film? Hal Ashby, uh, Hal Ashby was 
one of the great directors. And I'm happy great, to say that great. because he's such an underrated, wonderful Absolutely. director. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the great directors. And he was an uh, editor on um, the Sidney Poitier film, the one in the heat of the night. In the heat of the night. And, <clears throat> and so I was in his first film. Um, what's the name of it? Hmm? The land Landlord. The Landlord. The Landlord, which, Landlord. which had me with yes. Pearl Bailey. Fantastic That was his first directing job. And so Warren shows him to direct Shampoo, but the real director of Shampoo was Warren, who had written the script, co-written the script, uh, and, and, and had to have his, his hands in everything. He is an amazing producer, director, and actor. Um, so, uh, uh, Hal really uh, worked in tandem with Warren, but Warren directed himself. Warren, you know, and, and there's a story that I have in the book where the first day of, of, uh, of shooting, Warren sat me down at a table like this and he said, listen, you know, when, when, when you open the door and you see me with your daughter, uh, you don't know we've done anything. Yeah. We don't know that there has been sex between us. You don't know that. I said, why? He says, because women don't know. <laughs> Believe me, I, I'm telling you this because I know it. I know women, yeah. and I know this. And he gave me an example of when somebody walked in on him, <laughs> and he didn't know. So... Uh, I got very sick. I thought, this is my hairdresser, and he's telling me what I think when I open the door and see him with my daughter. Hmm. And I had this terrible migraine, and I had to go upstairs with him, as you saw, in my mink coat, and I just, you know, got it over with, just the way you saw it. I thought, I don't like him anymore. And I decided to, to, um, to quit. I, I, you know, I couldn't see myself coming in and be directed by him when Hal Ashby was the director of the thing. And so I came back the next day. I told him. He said, what do I know? And from then on, it was, it was a love match. How did they get along, Warren Beatty and Hal Ashby? Oh, beautifully. Be Hal got along with everybody. Hal had been an editor. Editors have to get along with everybody. <laughs> okay, why don't we see now the second clip? Half the money is hers, period. Pa. Come on, Papa, sit down. The half is mine. Pa. All right, come on. Pa. Come on, Pa. Dad. Sit down. I sit don't down, live this way anymore. She goes her way, I go mine. I have this erection. It is so big. It's like one of those Thanksgiving Day balloons. If I don't do something about it soon, bang! I'll be left without a dick for the rest of my life. I'm only 17. You're jail, babe. Lois, have mercy on me. Please, cry. 
Hey. I didn't run to you. You asked me, so don't give me that. What was I going to let you do? I was going to let you sleep in the streets? Uh, huh? Maybe I should have this time. When you lost that last job, lost. I lost. I lost nothing, oh, all right, Eddie? Lost. Yeah, me and 10,000 other jerks. The plant claws. They all oh, just clawed. All right. I just... <clears throat> there is a moment when you start directing. Can I ask you, why did you start this new phase of your career? Well, you know, um, to get the kind of films I've been getting, you really have to be a certain age in, uh, in Hollywood. And after, after Shampoo, I knew that the kind of parts that I would get would be like the lawyer to the leading lady, <laughs> you know? And, and I, I went to the AFI. I was asked to go there for their first women's directing <clears throat> workshop. And, I just fell in love with it. You know, I, I did Strindberg. It was something close to my heart. And, and I saw a way out. I did not want to become old in Hollywood. You know what I mean? So, you know, How did it, you start? Where did you learn from? I, I, I don't know. You know, that's what I mean when I say I said yes to everything. I think I don't know my limitations. <laughs> and so I do it anyway. And, and, and that's, you know what, and it was so like serendipity. I mean, I did this um, small piece at the AFI, and these girls who had the Tilly Olson piece that yep. Melvin Douglas was in saw it by accident. It's a half-hour film and wanted me to direct this. So, I mean, it was like... Gifts kept coming, and uh, and then Joey and I um, uh, had a production company in New York and made oh god a hundred a hundred documentaries and films. Is there a filmmaker, a director that it was influential to you as a director? Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, I, so I just Springer, worshipped him, Bergman, and I got to work with Sven Nyqvist. Mm -hmm. On that, on great that movie with, with uh, Marlo Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you miss acting during that time? No. And how was working with actors? Did you learn anything from them when you were directing? Being all of a sudden on the other side. I think everything, and I'm sure that that my fellow actors there will agree. I think everything is in the casting. I think once you cast, uh, if, you, if you're casting the actors that you want, they know what to do. I've, I, I've never had a good director like Hal or Norman Jewison or any of them tell me what to do. They always said, surprise me, you know? And so all I ever wanted was my wonderful actors to surprise me. And they did. But you're always also a marvelous uh, documentarist. Why don't you watch now the final clip and then we discuss about documentaries, the third and final clip. Eight women, employees of the Citizens National Bank, walked out of their jobs and went on strike. They walked a picket line for the next year and a half through the bitter cold of two Minnesota winters isolated in their own community. 
In just a few days, she will have major surgery at a Texas medical center to complete the transformation from male to female. Not a person in the audience would suspect that Kathy is a man. Did you ever live in the sewer? How else do you say something like that? The peeling from the wall in, in the, the bathroom. bathroom. So we yeah. have rain, you'd have to sit on the toilet with an umbrella because yeah. it's constantly raining in the bathroom. Why do you have to beg in the United States land of opportunity where? Somebody show me where the land of opportunity is. I had managed to get the gag off of my mouth and asked him why he was doing it. I told him that I didn't want to die. And he told me he was doing it because he loved me. I love you this much. This big much. That's huge. That is huge. You know what? what? Mommy's got to go back to the hospital for just a minute, and then I'll be back, okay? okay. They're going to give me a shot, okay, so that I feel better. Here in southeast Texas, we found a family court system filled with cases so medieval in their punishment that we stayed to bring you these stories. Charles Martin said I was detrimental to my kids. Judge ordered that I couldn't tell them goodbye. You're at the mercy of these judges and these lawyers. And everyone's afraid to speak up because they control your lives, they control your children. She produced The Palestinian, a film she financed by selling her home. Well, the central thing about the film The Palestinian was that not one country in the world had made a full feature-length documentary about the Palestinian people. Not one. They wanted to know who was this kid that came out on the stage and absolutely entranced the audience. I didn't know they were talking about me. Couldn't have been talking about me. I didn't do any such thing. It's hard to accept and recognize that. too old. Jack, Nich Jack Nicholson was 24. Now. Jack Nicholson was 24 years younger than you at the time. So what? So much. So much. Right. So I, right. I just want to be, that's always. I forgive you. I forgive you. <laughs> I have nothing more to say at this time. I'm happy to reiterate that she won a second Academy Award as director for one of these films. How did you pick these stories? What, how do I? How do you decide to make this film instead of another film, these documentaries? It was, uh, I had a partner. You have to have uh, a partner who goes to a network, and, and this, in this case it was HBO, and talk them into doing the thing that your heart tells you is a story to be told. One of the things I think that came out of being blacklisted for 12 years was that my sensitivity to uh, unfairness, to unfairness, was so high. And the ability at last, at a certain time in my life, to be able to make films, to open my mouth, and to say all the things that I had wanted to say during the 12 years when I wasn't allowed to say it, um, became like 
such a door opening for me. It was such permission to finally say in a form that reached people the things that hurt me, that, uh, that I really, really, really cared about and was able for that period of time when we had our company and made documentaries and then we made TV movies out of the documentaries, a lot of them, so that it went from a documentary audience to an audience in those days of like 40 million, you know. And, and so it, it was very gratifying. You just mentioned the period of when you were blacklisted, 12 years. Is there anything that you learn? Is there anything that was good that came from that yes. period? Can Absolutely. you tell us what? It was, it was my college. I was 24 when I was blacklisted, and I was 36 when it ended. Mm -hmm. And so, I, and I was married, and I had stepchildren, and, but I learned to fight in the union because it was the union um, presidents and the board that were blacklisting their own members in the American television business. And so uh, I, I learned. It was, it was an education for me. I had nothing to lose because I couldn't work in television or film. And so I learned to, to be a fighter, and I think that that's how all these films uh, came to be made. Who among the talents or the filmmakers was closer to you, helped you all through these years? Huh? Anyone in particular was closer to you during this, that time? Well, I had, I had a lot of producers. Uh, Roberta, Roberta, what's Roberta's last name? She's here. She's my friend for 40 years. But when I say I forget names, you know. <laughs> and, and, uh, and like uh, 15 other women producers. And my husband, Joe Fury, who was the producer part. I was the director part. He was the producer part. He was the one who pulled the whole thing together. And we were both warriors together and against each other because he was the money and I was the one who wanted to do it. And he'd say, no, no, no. And um, I'd say, yes, yes, yes. You start working in the business in the 50s. Huh? You start working in the business in Hollywood and in the movie business in the 50s. How did you see it, it changed in 50 or 60 years? What are the major changes? Or it's still the same game? No, uh, I think that uh, the interesting stuff that was done during my time, the 70s were just, I mean, what films were being made then? And what filmmakers, Coppola and Ashby and all these, you know, great, fresh vision guys were there. And now, you know, Agree with me or not, it feels Disneyfied to me. <laughs> I mean, it's all these, you know, super vampire, dead people walking, <laughs> um, gravities, you know, whatever is, you know, you know, I don't know. Um, and the wonderful things that are happening are like 
you know, Homeland on, on uh, television and, and uh, bad, bad, bad. Breaking Bad? Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. You know, those have been very, very exciting and interesting. And you don't know which way it's going to go, and it's about something. Um, you know, all of the independent films have been going to like Sundance. They haven't been getting the kind of backing that that certainly was there when, when uh, we were working. Is it true that last year you went back on the stage and you played a role in the gene game? <laughs> well, uh, my daughter, Dinah Manoff, um, lives on Bainbridge Island in the state of Washington. And she asked me if I would do a reading for her of the gin game with a wonderful, wonderful actor who was also on the island. And you, you know, uh, my daughter was directing me, and I had, you know, you know, what it, you know, she's a pretty strong girl too, so. And you know, we had a wonderful reading, and uh, and I thought she was so talented and wonderful, and and it worked out very well. Before we start getting questions from the audience, a question about the book. Uh, in terms of writing, did you? Did you get any inspiration for another writer like Bergman for your filmmaking? Huh? Oh, for writing? No, I, I, I am really stunned that the reaction has been so, so, so you know, generous and, and wonderful. Because for me, it was, it was just like, you know, flooding flooding out of me, and, and I was so excited at finding all these, these things. Um, and, and the fact that it is so readable and was, you know, a surprise to me. I've never written before. And it's, you know, and going from uh, acting to directing to documentary making to, at my age, which you'll never know, uh, <laughs> To, to find writing, of all things, you know, it was just, you know, a whole kind of door opening up. You know, it was just felt exciting. Can I ask you something about politics? About politics, yes. Do you consider yourself an activist? How would you define yourself in terms of politics? Well, I'm, I'm a lefty. I've always been a lefty. Um, I, I just feel in this period, uh, overwhelmed. I think we all are. I think the world is breaking. It's, it's broken. And, uh, and I, I don't see anybody knowing how to mend it. It's like we've gone back to tribal life. And everybody is part of one tribe, that's, it's like the Hutu and the Tutsis. You remember when that first started? The Hutus and the Tutsis. There are Hutus and Tutsis everywhere now. They're called by different names. But, but it's, you know, it's incomprehensible. Do you have hope or trust in the president? Or you're disappointed or cynical about it? I, I think when that guy took office, with all his promise that he never expected 
to be barraged with a world breaking up on his watch. And that the beginning of that breakup, to me, was President Bush going into Iraq. Since we're talking about politics, I'm sure that we, you went back to the blacklist moment for, period for a long, uh, many, many times. How do you think was possible in this country, the nation, the country of the First Amendment, that that happened? How is possible that this happened in America? Did you ever ask yourself this? Well, don't forget, we have a kind of history of, of going up, you know, as in the coming out of the 50s. I was, I was still blacklisted in 1964, and the Kennedys were president. Kennedy was president. And then we went into this huge anti-Vietnam period where it was the hippies and, and everything went. And then we went into Nixon. And, and, the, and the Pentagon Papers, you know, so there seems to be a pendulum that swings but, back and but forth. But this is the city and the nation of the Statue of Liberty. How is this possible that someone is condemned or blacklisted because he has an idea, he is convinced of something? Well, that's why I wrote about it. <laughs> so, not only I encourage you to read this great book, but it's, it's an, an eternal discussion that we should yes. have. Yeah. Why don't we start now taking questions from the audience? I know that there will be two lines, one on my left, one on my right, and we'll be happy to hear. First, thank you for a memorable evening, Ms. Grant. And a quick question I have. Uh, there was a book published earlier this year called Blacklist, and it's fiction. And um, I just wondered, since you've experienced what you have, um, do you feel that that's appropriate for someone to write a book where the characters are involved in the Blacklist? Were they? I didn't know that. Are they involved the in the The characters, the fictional characters in the book. Are they, I mean, is that what the book Blacklist is about, about not the Blacklist period? Not entirely. It, it involves a lot of other things, murder and so on. But the setting is that era. Who's the good guy? Uh, oh, there is. Well, I don't want to give it all away. because Give the book away. My book. <laughs> who, who are the good guys? <laughs> there is are good guys in it. And, um, and I just wondered, since I've, most of the things I've read about the Blacklist were straight facts, or if you want to call it. And um, it's, I think it's an interesting book. It's written by Jerry Ludwig. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'll get it, you know, and read it. Leave your number. I'll let you know. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jim Pesinich. I'm a docent here. Miss um, Grant, would you go into more detail about the blacklist? Why were you blacklisted? Why did it end after mm -hmm. 12 years? Sure. Who turned on you? Um, what happened? Thank you. Um, I, uh, uh, after I was in Detective Story, I went into another play called, um, called One Good Break. And um, it was written by Arnold Manoff, who I later married. 
and it had in it a cast of blacklisted actors, and he was a blacklisted writer, who were bringing this play to New York in hopes that they could earn a living here because they were blacklisted in California, in Hollywood, in films. And that brought a whole bunch of people into my life. Ring Lardner and, and Zero Mostel, and a lot of people who were considered communists at the time. And um, there was another actor who was in the play, J. Edward Bromberg, Joe Bromberg. Do you remember him? Mm -hmm. And, um, and he was being called up in front of the committee for the second time. And he had a bad heart. And he was in this play, All You Need Is One Good Break. And he was you know, sweating in the wings, and he was frightened, and he was saying, I'm going to have a heart attack. They're making me go up in front of the committee again. I'm going to have a heart attack. And then he went to London and opened in a play there and died. And they asked all of the Broadway community to come to this hotel on Broadway to give a memorial for J. Edward Bromberg. And they asked me, too, since I had been a cast member with him and we'd been friends. He was 49, by the way. And, uh, and so I said that I felt that, that his heart attack had been caused by his fear of the Un-American Activities Committee. And two days later, I went to Actors' Equity, and an actor in front of me turned around and says, oh, I see you've made the list. And, uh, and the words that I'd said at Romberg's memorial were repeated in the book. And from that time, from that you know, time of the memorial to 12 years later, I was blacklisted. Of course, I hope I gave them more reason <laughs> after that. I tried very hard. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Norman Arnoff. I'm thinking of three movies that came out in the 50s and 60s. Um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, uh, 12 Angry Men, uh, and especially To Kill a Mockingbird. And my question to you is, how, did, how do you think movies uh, in that period, such as the three I mentioned, um, affected the course of American history? Hmm. That's a big one. Me? <laughs> what do you think, Antonio? <laughs> to, to Kill a Mockingbird is still a classic. I think that the, the second one is uh, Guess Who's Come to Dinner, is mentioned. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and 12 Angry Men. Yes, and so is 12 Angry Men. They're both fantastic films. Sidney Lumet. Did, did 12 Angry Men. Mulligan and, and Stanley Kramer are the three filmmakers. Honestly, the Kramer film is very enjoyable, very well acted, but a little bit dated now. Which? which? Uh, guess who's coming to dinner, to me. Not for that time. No, no, no. It was very important at the time. But the other two resist, I think, more. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think we will watch 12 Angry Men in 200 years and we'll still, still enjoy in the same the same way we did. The but talking about Sidney Poitier, I, I mean, how extraordinary that this guy from the Bahamas, you know, came over and 
and went by himself to Florida, made his way to New York, and made his way like this little weevil. But don't forget he was the most handsome man in the world. The most <laughs> handsome, and he just, you know, he, 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 by himself, he was the first real, uh, uh, what do you call it, sex toy. Yeah. A sex, sexy guy, you know, who, who just broke through that, uh, Talk about, you know, the changes in the country. I, I, I mean, and he was a part of that. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I'll try to elaborate later a little bit, if you want, why I think it's, that film is more dated than the other two. It's because of this reason. Because Sidney Poitier, who was a fantastic actor, a marvelous man, a very handsome man, maybe is too handsome for the role. It will be much stronger to have a less handsome and attractive actor in that role. Women? No. no. Thank you. I'm wrong. <laughs> I think it weakens the film. <laughs> I know, but it's too easy to accept Sino Poitier. Imagine if in that role you had another black actor, less attractive, Nobody. less charismatic. I know, no. I know, I, I, but Thank that's you, why Nicole. the film is more dated. Uh, she's an important agent. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> the lady was saying that uh, the fact that Sidney Poitier was in the film made the film very popular and made the film possible, which is absolutely true. At the same time, I think it made it a little bit more dated because it's the star. But I might be wrong, of course. Yeah, uh, it's wonderful to see you, and I love your guts as well as your acting talent. Uh, what I'm remembering now is there was a thing called Red Channels that destroyed an awful lot of performers, and they had the people who were victims of this hadn't done anything except that a finger was pointed at them, and that was the end of their careers. Yes. And uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, and what I also... Uh, Dalton Trumbo, who was also... Uh, pretty destroyed by everything, made a comeback with uh, Kirk, Kirk Douglas, uh, who eventually revealed who he was because he'd used a pseudonym. Uh, but there were people who were so completely destroyed, they never came back again. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you could talk a little about that, I'd appreciate it. Well, Red Channels was what I was listed in. Red, Red Channels, Red Channels, I mean, you know, I've written about it, and it's so complex. But the guy who wrote Red Channels made a living, uh, made a living out of picking liberals, somebody who raised a hand at, at uh, union meetings. Um, and then the, the liberals would not work, and they wouldn't know why. And they'd be sent to this guy, Vinton Hayworth. And he'd get money. And he'd get money from all the advertisers because there was Red Channels, there were other um, uh, magazines, there was the guy up in Syracuse with the supermarket who got me out of my first um, soap. I, I was, got away with a soap opera for a while. And then he put in front of his, his stand, do you want to buy Colgate toothpaste and support a communist on this on this uh, program. And, and so, 
You know, they had it coming and going. They had the advertisers scared, and they had a whole board of AFTRA uh, working with them. Uh, so, um, you know, there weren't that many communists. There were people who were liberals and who were trying to fight against it. And if they, you know, took one step, uh, they had to find their way back somehow, and they couldn't, you know, they couldn't support their families. I have a whole story in in uh, in this book about um, about this guy on the radio. Who am I talking about, Joe? How did you know that? <laughs> John Henry Falk. John Henry Falk was such a hero. He had, he had a radio uh, program, which was very, very popular. And Madeline Lee and I went to him to ask him to form um, um, a, an electorate to replace the ones that were in AFTRA. And, and, he, and he did. And I said to him as we were leaving, I said, you know, this will put you in, in peril. You will be in peril if you do this because these are the people who are blacklisting everybody. He formed a slate and ran. And then suddenly uh, they were targeting uh, John Henry. He lost his program. Uh, the slate was elected so that we got most of those guys out of AFTRA. But he was finished. He had a radio show, and he couldn't. He was getting money from from people like Edward R. Muller, Edward R. Murrow. Murrow, and and you know the people who were supporting him, because he said that as a Texan, his father was a lawyer and supported the people who needed it, and that was his creed. That was the kind of person that was getting hit. And, and, and then, finally, he found a lawyer who, who took um, uh, the guy who wrote the Red Channels to court, and they won. And it was at that cusp time when the blacklist was almost over and, and the 60s had almost started, and he won. And the interesting thing was that the grocer from Syracuse, who was also accused in that trial, was found dead that day in a hotel in New York. And, uh, and of course, Vincent Hartnett, the one who, who wrote Red Channels, uh, didn't have the money to pay him the million dollars, the millions of dollars. The jury said, can we give him two million more for John Henry? For what he'd gone through. So, um, you know, it was not, you, you know, it was not the commie. It was everybody who feels for other people who are doing the fight. I think we have time for a you know, couple of questions know. on this side. I don't know if this is appropriate now. Thank you so much for coming and talking. I just wondered a little about your background and how you got into acting, but I don't know if you have time to discuss it. I'd sure like to hear about it. Well, I think, you know, my mother 
was a, a refugee from, from Russia. And she was very, very much affected by the movies, she and my, my aunt. And so they had this high voice that they thought rich ladies in the movies had at that time. And she was determined that I would be a dancer, and when that failed, that I would be a singer, and when that failed, that I would be an actor, and, uh, and the last one took. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but it left me very uneducated. <laughs> been delightful. I was just wondering, having been through that experience, which you describe very movingly, has it left you wondering what kind of atmosphere does that type of thing flourish in? That kind of, um, what would you call it? Um, that kind of thinking. What? Paranoia. Paranoia. Yeah, I mean... I know it's happened since, and it's hard for me to, but I, does it... Has it left you wondering what is the, the soil that that kind of thinking grows in? Well, or is that too big a? I, you know, I think it's a question that all of us uh, have on our minds. You know, I, I was young enough to survive. Don't forget. The, the writers and the directors and the actors who came to New York from Hollywood, who were blacklisted there, had a good 15 years on me, 15 years and up. Um, and so they never did get their careers back, except for um, the, great, the great one that, that, that Kirk was involved with, Dalton. Dalton, uh, you know, but uh, they, it, that was a tragic story. I think I was the only blacklisted person to make it, to make it back in the way that, that I had. And it was really because, uh, you know, they, they got me when I was so young. Well, Lee, we're so glad you made it back. <laughs>